0: to open the word with you will be uh, at the end of acts chapter 22 so if you would open your bibles there to the end of acts uh, 22 that's where we'll be this morning Uh, as you know we've been journeying through the book of acts and our journey today takes us to the end of chapter 22 end of 23 Um, as you can see i got uh, a boot for my birthday this week so uh, i will be seated this morning um, hopefully, it won't be for very long, but my old friend has come back, Mr. Boot. Uh, friends, you'll look in our passage today at uh, the second of Paul's trials, and I hope what we learned today will be an encouragement to you. We began exploring, we began last week, exploring what is the, the second... the the final section in the book of acts and this is the second trial paul from acts 21 through the end of the book will uh, never be out of custody again he is in trial for the rest of his life as we know it no longer is the apostle paul moving from city to city to city declaring the good news about jesus and starting new churches instead he's in custody Now, one assumption might be that being in custody would render Paul's ministry as an apostle null and void. I mean, central to his life thus far has been the ability to travel to a new location, go where there's not a gospel witness, and begin one. He can't come and go freely. He can't travel to new cities and gather in the synagogue. He can't stand in the marketplace and declare that Jesus is risen There's no going from house to house to house to house encouraging people who've come to trust in the Lord. Does being imprisoned equal an end to ministry? Maybe you have found yourself asking a similar question. Does an end of a relationship, does a a failure in one particular major Does a serious illness render your ability to be useful to God null and void? Well, our passage gives a certain answer to that question. That answer is no. Even in custody, Paul continued to speak of God's good love. In fact, God continued to work through the apostle up until his final day. And as we heed the lessons in this chapter, we will find that God can do the same through us. So would you follow along with me in uh, chapter 22, verse 30. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet and brought Paul down and set him before them. If you missed last week, so glad you're here today. Just a, a very, very brief recap. Paul was arrested by the Jewish authorities and then transferred to Rome. Rome was about to to beat him to find out the real reason why he was arrested and then Paul told them that he was a Roman citizen so they weren't allowed to do that. He was given certain rights and privileges as a citizen and yet the the Jews remained in an uproar and Rome couldn't figure out why and so in our passage today Rome gives him back to the Jews to try him that hopefully they could figure out what's actually going on. Verse 1 of 23, looking intently at the council, this is the, what's called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish, uh, what we might call the Jewish Senate and Supreme Court. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up till today. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with him. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, that's Rome, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and to bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. We learn from this second of five trials that Paul faced during imprisonment a timely lesson. A lesson that's helpful in our own day. We could summarize this passage by saying it is by standing on God's promises and resting in God's providence that Christians will serve as witnesses to the resurrection. Imagine, friend, that you've been arrested. The charges against you are not entirely clear, but they have something to do with your Christian faith. And so you're in prison. The prison is cold, the bed is hard, the handcuffs are tight, the company is unwanted. You are brought out for your pre-trial hearing. That's essentially what this was for Paul. And the charges against you are raised by declaring Jesus is the resurrected Lord and swearing allegiance to Him. Then you've spoken blasphemously and you must be condemned to death. That was the Jewish view of Paul's behavior. Now, at the present time in the United States, none of us will face that kind of trial in a court of law, although you certainly will in a court of public opinion. Can you think of a situation, friend, in your own life in which you could be called on to give witness for Christ before a hostile audience? Again, it won't be a legal courtroom, but perhaps it would be with a boss at work after offending a coworker because you shared your faith. Or maybe in the classroom when you turn in a paper on a topic related to religion and you don't take the atheistic position of your teacher. How will fallible Christians like you and me remain faithful to the gospel? to make public witness for Christ when those who don't follow Christ are becoming more and more hostile. Well, in God's mercy, this passage shows us how. It is by standing on God's promises and resting in God's providence that people like you and me can be faithful to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm thrilled to talk with you about that idea today because it's so significant for our own time. And yet before we jump in there, would you consider a, a sub-point in this passage that really we could summarize in a single word? It's, it's there in verse 1. It's the word conscience. Paul said, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to today conscience. What in the world is a conscience? Conscience is one of those words that seems to have fallen out of style. It isn't in our common vernacular, but biblically, it's a rather significant issue. So I want to take a couple of moments today to think with you about conscience and encourage us as a church to think more about this and speak more often about it to one another. You see, your conscience, brothers and sisters, is an independent internal witness to our behaviors and our motives. It's an internal, independent witness to our behaviors and our motives. Conscience and conviction of the Spirit are not the same thing. You see, Christian and non-Christian alike, everybody has a conscience. That's one of the reasons why, if you look across cultures and across time there has been a stunning amount of unity about things related to morality across cultures, across time periods, across religions. That's because to be a human being is to be one who has a conscience. Your conscience is not, of course, the final arbiter of right and wrong, but it is a gift of God, given that you might know your own motives, and monitor your own behaviors. Now, the Bible gives us lots of different arenas in which we can think about conscience. I want to to speak with you just about a few of them. And maybe the easiest way in which to notice or think about conscience comes under the, the umbrella of things that are neither categorically right nor wrong, but rather things that are wise or unwise. Many times in the coming week, as you go to work, go to school, go to the restaurant, the grocery store, get in your car, you will be faced with moments in which you've got to make a decision. And those decisions many times won't be deciding between something that's sinful and not sinful, but rather you'll be deciding between something that's wise and something that's unwise Now, the book of Proverbs in the Bible is given to help us in those kinds of situations. But even the book of Proverbs can't speak exhaustively about all situations. And most things in life do fall in this rather nebulous arena of what is wise. For example, should you go on a date with him or not? Should you use alcohol in moderation, or is it better to avoid it? Should you vote for Biden or Trump? Should you go to ASU or U of A? Now, that may be a bad example. There's a whole host of daily decisions that we must make that are neither categorically right or categorically wrong, but rather they come down to what's prudent, what's wise, your conscience has been given that you might have help in those kinds of moments. But it's not quite that simple because you see a a continued neglect of conscience when you're faced with these wise and unwise kind of moments and you choose to ignore your conscience, scriptures say that your conscience can become seared like with a hot iron or they can become dull or numb. And we've all experienced that to one degree or another. We would do well to ask God to keep our consciences attentive, that the antennas would be up, so that we would listen to that internal sense of what's wise and unwise. This is one way in which the Bible talks about conscience, that maybe we've not been as aware of as we could be. And maybe we'd make better decisions on a whole if we were more sensitive to this. There's another sense in which the Bible talks about conscience, though. The conscience also has the function of being an internal witness about what's right and wrong. It is the the function of intuition in our moral faculties. To have a bad conscience would be to have a conscience that's plaguing you. Imagine this morning some of us had a hard time actually singing. Maybe you, maybe you sung, but your mind was somewhere else. Imagine some of us as we read Scripture, as I read that many verses, 12 verses, that some of us have a hard time staying engaged. Not because we're tired, but because our consciences are plaguing us. Things we've chosen to look at. Words we've chosen to say, things we've chosen not to do, that we know to be right. A bad conscience is a conscience that won't let you off the hook. But there's also a good conscience. A good conscience comes from that sense of having faced a opportunity to choose right or wrong, and by God's grace, you chose right. And that conscience then serves as a witness, a witness against those who violate standard and against and, and for those who follow moral standard. Now, fascinatingly, your, your, your conscience has no power to help you choose the right. It only has the power to point out what is right or wrong. It's in that way like the check engine light in your car. That light is alerting you, something is off, something is wrong, but it's not as though that light can do anything about it at all. It can just tell you that it's there. That you need to pop the hood and pretend like you know what's going on. That's what the conscience does. Church, I want to encourage us to pay far more attention to our consciences. To cultivate a sensitive one. To pray for it. To pray that God would cleanse our consciences. That He'd unsear them that we would cultivate a godly conscience by doing what we know to be right and relying on the Spirit's power to refuse what is evil. Conscience alone is inadequate, but you never prosper by ignoring what your conscience tells you. And one of the best ways to work out our conscience is in relationship with each other because we can misperceive what's going on inside of us. And so one of the great benefits we have of being a body of Christ, a family, is that we can talk through situations with each other, seeking help and benefit from one another. Now what does all this have to do with our passage? Well, if you look at verse 1 again closely, you'll see that Paul says there in verse 1 that he had a good conscience. Had a good conscience. In other words, in our language, Paul's saying, my conscience before God was clear. Now, on the surface, that might just mean that Paul's telling the Sanhedrin, look, uh, I, in fact, did not break the Old Testament law. It could be that he was just saying that, but probably not. Because if you read verse 1 closely, notice the duration of time now, Paul's referencing that he had a good conscience. He says his whole life. His whole life. I'm not sure I can say that about anything. But here Paul is saying, before Jesus came, when all that he knew was his Old Testament, because that's all that was written, then Paul lived his life fully convinced that what the Old Testament promised would come true, that what the Old Testament commanded, Paul sought to follow. His conscience was good before God. But then after Jesus' death and resurrection, and after Paul's conversion, then he became convinced that Jesus is the one the Old Testament prophesied about and promised and foretold, and that the law was fulfilled in Jesus, and so that it's By Jesus' obedience to the law that Paul's made right with God, not by Paul's obedience. Paul came to see Jesus as the king, as the slaughtered lamb and the sovereign Lord. And so he understood himself, and this was definitely the point of dissension with the Sanhedrin. He understood himself as being right with God and in continuity with his Old Testament. Because he saw Jesus as the whole point of the Jewish faith. Jesus is the completion, the end, the telos. His conscience was convinced that he was right. To put that a different way, Paul, standing before that hostile audience that day, said to them, I am standing on God's promises. God promised to send a deliverer. And that deliverer had come in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when you get into a conversation, be it today, or in a few days, or in a few years, and you're speaking to an individual or a whole bunch of people who you know do not believe what you believe about God, how is it that you will not shirk your responsibility, your privilege, to talk about Christ? How is it that the fear of what people would say to you and the rejection that you might in fact face, how is it that that fear won't cause you to be silent? What do you do when that moment comes? Well, Paul's example shows us that we are to stand on God's promises. God has promised to hold you fast. He's promised that nothing will separate you from His love. He's promised you entrance into heaven by His Son. And perhaps most germane to this topic, He's promised His presence. The last thing Jesus said before He left to return to heaven is, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Ridicule and mockery, exclusion or derision. These things may at times come. And it seems more likely that more of them are coming. And yet they are temporary because Christ's love is eternal. How will you share the the parts of the gospel to the people who are reluctant to hear? Even the parts of the gospel that are offensive. Well, it's by relying on the Spirit's power that you will stand up in the promises of God not the promises that those relationships will necessarily be the same after you share, not the promise that there won't be consequence, but the promise that God's with you. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that we'll be perfect witnesses for Christ. In fact, if you look right in your own Bibles, there at verse three, you'll find one of the few moments in which it's evident that Paul was wrong. When Paul said he had a clear conscience, somebody nearby stood up and slapped him in the face. In our day, that would be something more like being spit on. It it was a statement of disgust. Paul was viewed as blasphemous. And apparently in anger, Paul reacted rather harshly. And while his words were certainly true Who he said them to and the manner in which he said them were wrong. According to Exodus chapter 22, you are not to speak against one in authority in that way. That's what Paul did. Now, likely, Paul's response is that he was admitting fault quickly and publicly. Friend, if you ever are sharing the gospel with somebody and they respond in such a way that then you react to them in sinful anger, the best thing to do is to simply repent and to try again. That's the clear application of chapter 23. Stand on His promise. His promise that if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness even sins committed during the proclamation of the gospel. What better time to confess belief? Now the greatest of all God's promises that Paul draws attention to is in verse 6. He points to what he calls the resurrection. Paul believes the hope in the resurrection of the dead was the reason he was on trial. He believes that the central matter of faith is The resurrection. So, in that way, it's not just Paul that's on trial, it's also his gospel. It's his belief. It's his confession. Maybe this morning there are a few people here, be it online or in the room, who are unfamiliar with what Paul might mean. Would you allow me the the blessing of taking a few moments to explain? Friends, the Bible is is shockingly honest. If you've never read it, it only takes a few pages to see that this is no airbrushed version of how life works. No, it's candid. The Bible describes people as amazingly valuable, as made in His image, as the crown of creation, and as morally responsible human beings. It also states that very early on people messed up. We made decisions that were catastrophic to our own lives. And we're endlessly creative in coming up with ways to hurt each other. The Bible's language for that is sin. And the scriptures say that ultimately sin is against God, that we've universally failed to follow Him. And just like those of us who who have jobs outside the home, we work for a wage we expect at the end of the pay period to get paid the scripture says that the the wages what we've earned with sin is death spiritual death meaning separation from god and ultimately physical death this is sin and this brokenness has caused a fracturing of all things There's no need for examples here because you know this well. There's evidence of it everywhere. The Bible's gracious answer to this mess is resurrection. This is the central message of the Bible, that God promises a new kind of life that will eventually bring an end to death itself. You see, Jesus, God, left heaven, came to earth, became a Jewish man, lived a life of perfect obedience to the law, never turning from the Father, always faithful to Him, always maintaining a good conscience. And thereby, because of this right standing, He was able to offer Himself as a substitute, whereby He took our wages for us. Our debt became His debt. Three days later, he rose again, he was resurrected, and thereby his life became our life, amen? Jesus became the first of millions, even billions, who would come after him. A bunch of them are in this room today. People who've confessed that they trust in Christ, whose sin has been transferred to Jesus and whose life has been given to them. To these are given new life. Today, spiritual. And one day, it will be physical. We'll be given resurrected bodies, bodies in which boots will no longer be necessary, even cowboy boots. This is what Christianity is ultimately about. Christianity is about the hope of the resurrection about the day that King Jesus will return. He'll take all those who are His, will be transformed never to die again, never any aches or pains, always a good conscience, never again will we hurt each other. And we will be with our Lord. Friend, if you've heard a version of Christianity that somehow claimed that you simply need to reform your behavior, And then you'll be meeting the expectations of Christianity. You've you've missed the message. You were lied to. Christianity is not about what you can do for God. It's about what God has done for you. God opens himself to you through resurrection. And that belief is why Paul was on trial. For he held that from beginning to end, everything this book says is ultimately about Jesus. That Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. And that if you fail to see Jesus as resurrection, or if Jesus was not really resurrected, then faith is useless. You should have just stayed in bed today. Our hope and prayer is that if you don't know Jesus, you'll come to know Him today. He's ready. His arms are open. If you but turn from sin and come to Him, you will experience the beginnings of this resurrection. If you have remaining questions, we'd love to visit with you about them. After we end, in just a few minutes, out on the patio, there'll be a whole bunch of people, many of whom have come to know Christ and would love to tell you more. Now, in terms of our passage today, it's likely that as Paul broached this topic of resurrection, he did so for two reasons. Number one, it's very likely that he simply wanted to announce the good news. He wanted another opportunity to testify to the grace of God in Christ, and so he took it. And yet, the way this text is written, it seems as though there was another reason why he brought up resurrection. Paul understood his audience, for the most part, if not in total, wasn't really open to the gospel. They had no intention of listening to him. Their minds were made up before he ever spoke. And so he wanted this trial to come to an end without his death so that he could get on to Rome, where he would make proclamation for gospel there. And so his tactic in that moment was both shrewd and brilliant. You see, this group, this Sanhedrin, the Jewish group that Paul appeared before in this passage, consisted of 70 members. And these members of the Sanhedrin were part of two different political parties. One was called the Pharisees. The other was called the Sadducees. One's logo was red and one's was blue. That part I was kidding. But not unlike our own day, One of these parties was more liberal in their theology and the other was more conservative. The Sadducees were the anti-supernatural kind of folks. They they didn't believe in angels or demons. They rejected the notion that the Old Testament taught there would be a resurrection. They had come to hold only in the material. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the strict interpreters of the bible they took scripture at his word and so they remained people longing for the messiah and the resurrection and the return and hope of israel they just didn't believe that jesus was the one who had been resurrected so paul knowing he had no real audience with this group takes out of his bag the equivalent of a theological grenade and he pulls the pin and launches it into the middle of the room He knows they won't listen to him. He knows he has no real shot at seeing someone saved in this bunch. Their hearts are hardened. So he pulls the pin, announces resurrection, and then everything comes loose. As soon as that grenade hit the ground, the Pharisees began defending him. Do you see the irony there? They disagreed with the Sadducees about resurrection and so they turned and started agreeing with Paul while the Sadducees on the left began declaring Paul's guilt. No longer interested in the trial itself, they simply were arguing for their own position. For all intents and purposes at this point, Paul could have just slid out of the room as Pharisee and Sadducee went to blows each arguing over their own position. Friends, there's a certain wisdom required when you share the gospel. Not everyone is actually open to hear. Sometimes, you have to move on because there's others who are more ready and open because God might be sending you elsewhere Now, for time's sake, I must move on now to the second great reason why we can stand firm. That is down in verse 11. I'd love to read it to you again. It says, the following night, the the Lord stood by him and said, take courage or take heart. For as you testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome church, it's likely that on this particular evening, Paul was very discouraged. He had reason to be discouraged. The church in Jerusalem he hadn't been with in roughly 20 years was still struggling to fully embrace Gentiles. The Pharisees and Sadducees, this this party that, these two parties that were supposed to be the very best Judaism had to offer. Godly, competent, Bible-knowing, God-loving men. And yet they were a total mess. And in fact, Paul got better justice from Rome than he got from his fellow countrymen. What a sad, sad experience that must have been for him. How do you get through, beloved, when things are terribly gloomy? When everywhere you look, there are reasons to be disappointed. Well, it's not simply by trying really hard. That's not the gospel. No, it's by laboring instead to trust God's sovereign plan. Now, in Paul's case, unusually, the passage says that God told him exactly what was to come. Could God do that today? Yes, of course. But it seems anecdotally or experientially, like for most of us, God doesn't so much spotlight the next several years of our life as He just turns on the flashlight so we can see the next step. But either way, God is faithful to keep us as His own in His providence. In Paul's case, God told him what was to come, and he did so in a particular way. God himself, the Lord, showed up. One of the credentials of being an apostle was that you had to have seen the resurrected Lord. So here Paul is getting yet more confirmation by the presence of Jesus Christ, that he is his apostle and he will be all the way to Rome. Today, the main way we see the Lord Jesus is through his church, his body. And the main way we hear the Lord is through his word, the scriptures. And so, while our particular circumstances may be different, the bedrock promise underneath this experience that Paul had is exactly the same thing as what we have. And that is the truth that the mission of the church will succeed. That God will be faithful to build His people. That God has a global plan to rescue people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to know Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him, to obey Him, to be bound together with Him. That is all exactly the same. You see, Christ will build His church. Nothing can stop the unstoppable spread of the gospel. Love, grace, truth, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, justice, God wins. Brothers and sisters, as long as you draw breath in whatever health condition you may find yourself with whatever amount of money you may have in the future, The providence of God for you is certain. While the particulars of our experience will be different for each and every one of us, God isn't using a cookie cutter. We're all different. And He walks with each of us personally and intimately. Although the particulars will look different, God will bring each of us into a state of spiritual safety and wholeness. God would have us be witnesses of the resurrection until the end. How? By standing on his promises and by resting in his providence. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd use your word now to do what you always promised to do, that it would not return void. That the Christians in the room would be encouraged to be bold witnesses this week. That non-Christians in the room would be encouraged to hear more clearly about your love offered in Christ. Father, I pray for those in the room who have neglected their conscience. I pray today that you would wipe it clean by your grace. That the forgiveness that's ours in Christ would be experienced in a good conscience. We pray for greater attentiveness to wise and unwise choices and to sin and refraining from sin in the future. Pray that you'd help us to have many conversations with each other in such a way that our consciences become more and more attentive throughout the day. And that in the coming week, when we're faced with situations in which we have some internal sense of yes or no, good or best, wise or unwise, that by your Spirit, by the power that's been given to us by the resurrected Lord, that we would choose the good. And especially that we would choose the good of as you open doors to announce the resurrection, to share the love of Jesus, that we would take them. And that we would take them without fear. That we would take heart. Pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.